Welcome back, welcome back, welcome back. Welcome back to ISSEDU Learn, Ask Me Anything, where you ask the questions and we seek the answers. I am your host, Mike P., your favorite educator interviewer. Today, my co-host, Dr. Dana Watts, is unable to be here with us today. Dr. Dana Watts is the director of research. Dana is the director of research, learning, and outreach at ISS. AMA is brought to you today by ISS. ISS stands for International School Services. It's a nonprofit organization that's delighted to support the global education community, creating one of the largest footprints in international education services. You can check ISS out at iss.edu. Before we get started today, just a few housekeeping items. Don't forget to hit subscribe, like, and leave us a review. You can find our podcast on Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, and also Spotify. ISS has a few events that are coming up. Just wanted to share a few with them with you in case you are interested. So we have Moving Beyond Self-Judgment and Self-Criticism through Mindfulness, which is happening on November 30th and December 12th. Those will be led, will be facilitated by Kaylin Furlaton and Dr. Francesca Malazzi. On December 1st and December 8th, we have responding to our students' strength and needs through conferring with Laura Benson. On December 6th, we have purchasing procurement and the RFP process with Keith Sincanada and Patricia Foster. ISS is also hosting a few recruit recruiting fairs. There are some that are online, and there's also one that is coming up in Atlanta, and then one in the earlier of next year in Washington, D.C. You can go to iss.edu in order to find out more information. And without further ado, I am here to introduce our interviewee for tonight, and that would be John Burns. John Burns is a Chief Innovation Officer for International School Services. John focuses on sparkling creativity, innovation, across ISS learning communities. John is responsible for the, the design and he's the one that founded L5 Space for students, education, educators, and a wider community to explore design thinking and innovation in education. So the last workshop that John had with us is one where he spoke on how to make mobile applications without even knowing how to code. So that was a pretty interesting one where these types of things you can know could get really time consuming and very costly. So John was able to teach us a few ways that we can not cut corners, but a few ways where we are able to create these apps without the having the, the full knowledge of coding such as HTML or uh, CSS or anything of that nature. So John's going to, he's going to answer a few questions that we have given him or given to him previously. And if you would like to check out the workshop uh, that John had, you can go ahead and check, uh, go to iss.edu and take a look at our passport. Our passport is one where you can purchase a workshop 
or you can purchase a catalog of workshops at once. You have the ability to watch recordings that we have. You have the ability to take a look at any resources that we'll be using for any of our workshops. And this passport includes any about 27 workshops and is a yearly subscription. So please go to iss.edu in order to check that out. And then without further ado, John Burns. Okay, so the first question that came up was, what's the difference between a web app and a native app? And when perhaps is it better to use one over the other? And this is really the perfect place to start. So a native app is one that's designed specifically for a particular type of device. So you can have native apps that are just designed for iPhone. You can have native apps that are just designed for Android. You can have ones just for Microsoft or other products. On the other hand, a web app is basically a website that's optimized to work on any mobile device or even any internet-enabled device. So when do you use web and when do you use native? And it really depends on the intent of what you're trying to achieve. So you'd head down the path of using or creating a native app just for iPhone or just for Android if you wanted to access specific features of the device. For example, do you want to use the device's camera? Do you want to use the device's GPS, its storage, its accelerometer? If you want to use any of that functionality, then generally speaking, it's better for you to create a native app. Now, the downside, obviously, being if you want to reach a larger audience, you need to design a native app for the iPhone. Then you need to do it for Android and for whatever other platforms uh, that you want people to access your app on. A web app, on the other hand, can be accessed by anyone on any device but you're limited in terms of some of the functionality. It's more difficult to get access to a device's storage or its accelerometer or its camera or GPS or other features like that. So it's better for more passive interactions or just feeding information to a user. An additional question we received was in regards to alternatives to outsourcing. What if I don't want to outsource the idea, but rather I'd like to try and design it myself? Where can I get started with that? And luckily, there is a ton of or a stack of fantastic resources out there uh, ready to be accessed. And a lot of it's specifically designed for educators too, which makes it even a little bit more appealing. If you want to stick with uh, designing for Apple and particularly the iPhone, then probably the best place to start is using Swift. So Swift is a programming language designed for developing iOS and iPad OS apps. And it's completely free and open source and available via Apple. Now, the cool thing about this is they've developed a lot of resources, not only for developers to engage with Swift, but also for educators and students to engage with Swift as well. So you literally just have to jump on the web, type in Swift Apple, and then what you'll get is the download, which is a program called Xcode. Xcode allows you to access Swift and design apps in there. You'll also see something else called Swift Playgrounds. And what Swift Playgrounds is, is an iPad OS app designed to teach you how to use Swift, but far more accessible to younger learners as well. And even adults, it's a really fun sort of game, interactive game to play. So you can jump onto Swift Playgrounds on your iPad and start to get the fundamentals of Swift as a language. And your students can too. Apple's also headed down the route of creating pretty extensive scope and sequence documents and curriculum documents for early phase all the way through to grade 12. So that you can not only teach yourself how to program and how to code, but you can also teach your students as well. So Swift is a nice place to start. 
because you can teach yourself how to code, you can teach your students how to code, you've got Swift Playgrounds for the younger learners, and then you've got Xcode and Swift for the older students and yourself to develop in. So it's a pretty nice place to get started. And there's a whole Apple community of educators that are supporting others in heading down the path or, or heading on their own journey with learning to code. Now, if you just want to dip your toes in and have a bit of fun while learning to code, there's a really, really cool game on Steam called Bitburner. So it's absolutely free. You can download it on Mac OS. You can download it on Windows. And what it is, it's essentially a cyberpunk dystopian theme, sort of like Matrix game that teaches you JavaScript through a series of hacking interactions. It's incredibly easy to get started with Bitburner. It's incremental in its design. So it starts off assuming you know nothing about JavaScript and you have no idea what to do and slowly builds teaching you new syntax and new operations that you can use JavaScript for. Fun, easy, simple, free, a good way to test if you are interested in coding without diving in too deep. Now, there are literally a million other ways to get involved in coding, to get involved in app development. But one other one I'll mention, and not something I've done myself, but I've seen a lot of schools exploring, is Unity. And Unity is for essentially developing cross-platform games. And you can develop for iPadOS and for iPhone and other devices on Unity. In terms of timeline for learning Unity, it's a little bit longer perhaps than using something like Swift Playgrounds or playing with Bitburner. But certainly it can let you create on one platform and then push your app out to multiple platforms in one go, which is great if you want to cut down the timeline involved in developing and not having to develop for just Windows, just for iPhone, just for Android and for others as well. And it really helps you to know some JavaScript before you start Unity. So by playing a game like Bitburner, it might be a softer or easier introduction if you do to head do decide to head down that path. Another question we received is, if I am engaging a contractor, how can I ensure that not only are they capable of assisting me with this work, but have they got a good reputation? Are they legitimate? Are they going to actually complete it and not perhaps just run off with the money I've invested in this app or this idea? So if you're using sites like Freelancer, if you're using sites like Upwork or Fiverr, there's certainly some look-fors that you want to make sure you've checked off before you head down a path of probably even interacting with a contractor online. So first thing, obviously, and generally the go-to is their community rating. Does the community you're using have some sort of star rating, some sort of thumbs-up rating? Can you go and see what their current rating is? And typically, most of them use a score out of five, you know, four stars, 4.5, something like that out of five. And within that, you can not only see what their rating is, but perhaps how many interactions they've had. So have they had five jobs on Fiverr? Have they had 15 jobs on Upwork? And then you can get a sense of perhaps how reliable they are. You can also look deeper into the number of projects they've completed and what those projects have been about. Usually, if you jump into their profile, it will indicate the type of project they work on, uh, they worked on, when it was completed, how long it took them to complete. Sometimes I'll even give an indication of how much that cost. So that might help you determine if this is the right individual for you as well. You can look into, of course, things like the date they joined to see if they've been on the community for a while. 
you can look across the community for the same username. So C is the person that, or the individual on Fiverr, the same individual that's on Upwork and the same one on Freelancer and sort of cross check to make sure they haven't been abusing one site or leaving people in the lurch on the other. You might also want to look into their pricing models. How do they actually tier their pricing? Do they have a pricing for a simple project over a set period of time? Do they have one for an intermediate project or an advanced project? Do they have past examples where you can see how much a specific project costs? So you can try and line up your idea with one of those to get a better sense of how much you might have to invest. Do they have other jobs they're currently completing? Because this will also impact you. If they've got a lot of work scheduled, that may impact when they can start on or get back to you in terms of their um, communication with you or complete the app you want designed. So you may want to look at that carefully before you engage any contractor. Do they allow for iterations or revisions? Once you've agreed on it, they shoot the app back to you. There's something that doesn't quite fit with your initial design. How many times will they be willing to look at that, revise that, and to what extent? And they should all list that in some capacity within their profiles. And then their delivery timeline. How long does it normally take them to complete set apps or simple apps or intermediate apps or more advanced apps? You should be able to find that information as well. And those things should help guide you in choosing the right contractor. Though there's always some risk associated with doing something like this online, what you're basically trying to do is mitigate that through as many checks and balances as you can put in place. Another question asks, what would you look for in a contract with one of these freelancers or someone on Fiverr or someone on Upwork? What would be your non-negotiables that you'd really need included? And there are a couple for sure. Um, number one, and this is not something I'd actually do, but a lot of people do head down the path of exploring uh, NDA or a non-disclosure agreement. You can find a lot of examples of NDAs online um, that can be easily modified and might help reassure you a bit more that your idea is not going to be stolen or, or taken. But I think in most situations, that's unlikely anyway. And if an individual did want to take your idea and run with it, it'd be incredibly difficult to pursue them internationally. So I'm not sure they're entirely worthwhile doing, but if it makes you feel better, why not? pursue an NDA, ask them to sign it. I have done it before in the past and I then stopped doing it for the smaller things I was working on. Clear deliverables, certainly. Really clear outlines. And this is where you can include pictures or any of the mock-ups you did that we discussed in the course. I expect this many screens in the app. I expect this functionality in the app. I expect that these images will be included. This is where video will play. Just as much detail as you can provide in terms of what you want to see in that final app is really critical. So nothing can be sort of forgotten about or missed along the way, especially if you've got it listed in there and then it doesn't appear, then you can go back and revisit those deliverables and ask for revisions or ask for iterations on the work you've done. So that's a really important one to just have those, even just bullet points and with attached imagery works as well. You certainly want all the IP related to it, all the code and all the developer level documentation. So all the code they've developed should be given to you in case you want to then go and work with someone else at a future time. And what we need or what we mean in terms of developer level documentation, all that code should be commented so that someone else can pick it up and go, 
okay, I understand what this code does. That's a really important step. Otherwise, you're going to add to your development timeline. If in the future you go to someone else, ask them to make changes, they have to then shift or shift through it all and determine what it does, understand what it does. So that developer level documentation is really important to make that process a lot easier in future in case you do engage someone else in the design or future design. I would certainly have communication expectations. If you email the developer or contact them through the platform that you're using, how long should it be before they reply? What's the minimum expectation you both have? You could probably push for something in the order of two to three days for at least a confirmation, just to at least know they've received what your message was. But you could, that's completely up to you and, and it may be within their limitations too. But it shouldn't be unknown. It shouldn't be you or the developer waiting around five days, six days, eight days going, did they get the message? How long is it till they'll get back to me? That should be really clear cut and identified right from the beginning. You may want to, and this depends on the platform you're using, it may not allow it, but a breakout clause. If, for example, they fail to meet a communication deadline three times, or they fail to include some set components in your iteration a number of times, you might want to have some capacity to have a breakout clause and to take whatever has been developed up to that point. This gets a bit tricky on some of these platforms like Fiverr and Upwork because they have their own terms and conditions related to projects you're engaging in on their platforms. But certainly it's something to look at and see, is there room for it within your engagement with a contractor on one of these platforms? You certainly want to include some components about usability testing. So giving yourself time to test the app, perhaps giving it to friends and family or colleagues to test as well. So that not only do you get to check it's up to your expectations, but you can watch how others use it and the interactions they have. And then that might help you tweak your design and it may inform some of the revisions you're asking for on your iPhone app or similar. And one that's really important, particularly for Apple, because it can be a bit of a pain, is you want your contract to include code signing and submission. So this means that they'll basically take the app take the app once it's completed and submit it to Apple on your behalf so it goes straight into the App Store. There's some waiting time associated there typically, but so that you don't have to do that process, particularly if you're not comfortable with some of the uh, steps that are required there. And it's very easy for them to do. You can have your own account through Apple and you can give a developer access to the submission component without exposing any of your other private information or components in your developer portal login. And the last one I received was, how long does it take to create an app? And really, obviously, the answer is it varies quite significantly. When I was first started, or when I first started on this journey and I was exploring app development, creating some basic flashcard apps, they weren't fantastic, but I would knock them out in one night. They'd be completely designed, have most of the imagery and interaction you wanted, and be somewhat ready to be published. As I went down the path of honing those and polishing those and getting support with graphic design and uh, user interface design and trickier components I couldn't do myself, then the process elongated. So for a typical or a simple sort of flashcard app, it might have been a two-week process. For something a bit more complex with a timetable and schedule involved, some interactions with Google Workplace, I think it's called now, some of those other components, 
that was more like a month or longer. And then as I headed down the path of full engagement with contractors for the Measure It app and some other work I did, that was more like nearly two months to getting close to three months from conception, from coming up with the idea, scoping it out, finding the right person, essentially getting them to agree with development of the app, marking out their milestones, going through all the revisions and iterations, and then submitting to Apple. So still relatively, it's like a small to medium size app. That was about three months of pretty intensive work and and backwards and forwards with a, a contractor to pull off. So that might help you get a sense of how long you're waiting. But if you have a simple idea for an app, you might find that a developer on Fiverr or Upwork or Freelancer or wherever you go can do that in a week or less. There may not be a lot of functionality to it. There may not be a lot of interaction to it, but something that maybe just showcases some teaching strategies, has some interaction with a bit of simple data recording, that probably wouldn't take too long to push out. Hey, thank you so much, John, for that. Appreciate your everlasting knowledge that you're always bringing to the workshops that we have. And while John spoke about certain things in his workshop in regards to how to create an app, I just wanted to put in my own two cents in regards to app making as I am a second year getting my master's in business and science at Rutgers University, my master's in user design. User design, if you, for those who don't already know, that is the overall experience that a user would have for a product. And that is a little bit different than UI, which is what John has spoken about a little bit, where UI, you're more worried about the aesthetic experience. UX, you're really worried about how the user is going to feel while they're going through your product and using it. So I mentioned two types of design well two types of things here which is user interface and then the user design so just wanted to speak a little bit more on those two things where like the user interface which is what john was speaking about it's a particular one or more thing that you make interact with in order to get something done so an example of that could be think about a tv remote it has buttons on it for you to press it, for you to change the channels. Think about an oven or a microwave. You have to tap the buttons or turn a specific uh, type of knob in order to get the microwave to do what you want it to do. So the interface is a particular thing that you do in order to interact with a product so that it can do something else. Now the experience, the experience involves several things. The experience involves where you are, experience involves your environment experience involves like how you are feeling at the moment experience has a lot to do with interactivity uh, experience has a lot to do with what's happening when you do something and what is the reaction of the user when they do do it so with user design the reason why i believe it's a very important to do while you're doing or even before you even do a sketch or a prototype with you with user interfaces is because you really want to get to know who your user who your demographic 
who your avatar, who is the ideal person who is going to be using your product after you create it. So a lot of times organizations are creating products where they are just creating a product because they have a problem in mind, but they're not necessarily, and they're going to create that product and they're not necessarily going to actual users in order to test the product. So by the time they create the product, you know, they design the product, they they develop the product and put it out there. It's a little bit too late to, to, it's a little bit, it's a little bit too late to do any fixes at that point. You know, you would have to do probably a review of the app and, and upgrade it accordingly. But with that, you have wasted so much time and so much money and efforts that if you knew exactly who the user was or did any type of testing in the beginning while you were doing, while you were thinking about the app, you would have reduced a lot, a lot of these risks and you would have had more users that are familiar more adaptable to your app because you did these types of research you did some user design now user design like includes a few various things like i said before but just to run just to mention a few you have user research user behavior and user testing these are like the different section in user user design that you would use before you even get into the developing or creating of any app so you know so the user research is you're, you're going to actual users in order to see if the app idea that you have is even valid if it's even something that the typical user that you think would use it if they would utilize it and if they would what types then you go into a little bit more questioning in regards to like what would they want to do with a type of app what would they want to see on a type of application what type of issues would they want to see resolved with this type of application so with that, with that type of research, even before you go and develop or even before you go and sketch anything, you already have like an idea of what the opposite user directly would want on this app. So you can work around that as opposed to just maybe just test, uh, just putting buttons there and here just to test things out. You know, after the user research, you know, you, you're getting to see a user, you, you get to notice a pattern you see a user behavior and with that user behavior you you are now able to create a an avatar a profile basically a typical person that will come on and use your 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 product and while knowing that actual demographic you're also knowing the type of behaviors that they would want on this particular app so those type of behavior that they were mentioning is something that you can incorporate in your app one way or another and in user design, that's a user designer, that's what they're doing. So they're thinking about all these things before it even gets to the UI stage. And the UI, the UX user designers and UI do work together, but UX is the beginning stages. UI is a subcategory, a subset of user design. So after you do the user behavior and you have an avatar and such, and you have all this research and things. And you start thinking about, you know, what features could go on this application. How would a user feel while they're using this application? So with all those things being said, now you're able to, you have an avatar, you have research, you're able to maybe sit down and do a quick sketch of something that 
just a very low fidelity sketch of of what it could possibly look like you know what the front home page may look like what an actual button may do where it may lead to you don't need to sketch every page but just sketching about five main pages five main features that maybe the user uh, that you you interviewed and had a research with can actually give you something to actually make the app better make the app a little bit more user-friendly, make the app a little bit more modern. So the example that I have that, you know, if you're listening to this podcast on Spotify, you, you can see what a user design and, and a user interface indiv uh, individual has done on these things. So if you take a look, um, if you just envision the Spotify player, the things that the user design would need to think about in order to come up with this player would be they need to understand new ways that people listen to music you know they would need to understand uh, how is the user using their playlist how many songs should go on a playlist before it's too daunting before someone doesn't want to you know scroll up and down how does one get more music into the playlist those things there's a user design. The user design is focused on how the user is feeling while they are going through each and every stage of the app using the features of the app. This is what the user design is focused on. So back to our example of Spotify, and if you look at UI, now you take a look at this interface that you see. You see that it's visually appealing. So basically, you you user interface, user a person who's working on the user interface is trying to make it, make it visually appealing and also represents the way the user would use the product. An example of this would be when a song is being played on Spotify, it turns green. So the song that's playing is turning green, which notifies the user that that is something that is the one that's being played at the moment. If you were to look at the bottom of the screen, you would see that there's a big play bar or maybe the pause button is there and so basically that big button is telling you exactly what is happening with the song and also at the bottom you'll see that the this the the song that is chosen is the one that's also being shown at the bottom of the screen so all these little indicators are showcasing to the user what to do what's going on without any type of hesitation on or confusion or frustration on their end so that's so so you can see by the time that the user a user interface is being created which is the aesthetic experience of the application there has already been some background work done in regards to the user design so that the feel of the app is proper so that now you can put in the proper features into it and also an, other examples of user interfaces the typography the colors the style the boldness the boldness the branding you know we know green is definitely associated with spotify and the, 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 the number of things that you can do and, and the icons and such so that's what i wanted to share with you guys <laughs> It's just something that I've been learning. So that's what I'm going, that's what I'm learning right now in school, user design and how important it is for products. It's not something that is new. We just apply it for softwares 
but it is also something that has been used for physical products. Earlier, we were talking about microwaves and ovens and such. Those things are things that have had individuals sit there and design because it's a user. If a user is going to be using anything, you should always have user design concepts in place prior to building of any user interface. So that will be all for today for episode seven. want to thank you all for tuning in and please don't forget to hit the subscribe, like, and leave us a review. You can find us on Google Podcasts, Apple, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, Stitcher. And once again, thank you for listening in on to ISS EDU Learn ask me anything where you ask the questions and we seek the answers until next time fellow educators till we meet again bye bye